straight to the source. Your destination for food, views and big ideas. Brought to you by two of the best in the business, Tonya Barr and Lucy Allon. Join them to discover some of Australia's most dynamic food, hospitality and agribusiness leaders. Hello and welcome to Food, Views and Big Ideas. I'm Tonya Barr. And I'm Lucy Allen. And this is the podcast from us here at Straight to the Source. In this podcast, we will be introducing you to the people who are driving our food and hospitality industry forward. Whether it be on the land, in the water, in the kitchen, or from the boardroom. Each of our guests are playing a significant role in the evolution of Australia's food identity and culture. And we want you to know who they are, their views, and their big ideas. Today we're talking with food and industry leader Nicholas Georges. Anyone that knows him knows that he is driven by innovation and a deep appreciation for food and the role that it plays in our culture. If you own or run a food business, then this episode is definitely for you. Welcome, Nicholas. Thank you. It's great to have you with us this morning. And um, you are currently acting CEO for Cocoa Black Chocolate and Grilled. And and your career has taken many turns since growing up in France. And I think it would be wonderful if we could start right there. Yes, for sure. So, yeah, so I've uh, I've a French born and lived there for, I'm going to try and count quickly, but it's about 24, 25 years there. And um, born in the north of France from a family that had roots in the Mediterranean. Uh, and and for those who know France well enough, there we go to food already. You know, for, France is a, is a territory of food. So you do 50 kilometers every way and you'd find a complete different type of cooking and recipes and ingredients. Obviously, it comes from the fact that France is a medieval country. Uh, and a country of invasion and different cultures. So everyone just brought their own thing, which obviously, you know, has ties with a lot of new world countries where it's all about immigrations. But the big difference, I think, in the medieval times is people could not travel far and wide. So they'd just gone into somewhere and then started to develop based on what they could uh, get locally. So obviously, if you're in the north and, you know, you're getting potatoes, it's quite different than if in yourself. And you're getting tomatoes. So obviously, they all created their own form of cooking, if you want. So uh, France is quite interesting like that because, you know, we talk about the fact that we have 653 types of cheese, I think. And that, that's an example of a medieval country that's just kept its tradition throughout and uh, actually gone through. So that's that's my heritage. That's where I started. And What made um, you want to leave? I <laughs> <laughs> will get to that. That's an interesting <laughs> question, actually. But yeah, so so I I became interested in food like most French people very early in my in my youth. Except that at some point always come the question about what do you want to do, you know, as a as a job. And I really didn't know. I I probably knew more what I didn't want to do. Um, and so by elimination, I ended up doing um, food tech essentially um, in one of the uh, top engineer school in France. So I became a food science engineer, um, you know, um, by, you know, not by calling necessarily as much as by uh, liking. And so that's the path I went to. And um, I was lucky enough that uh, very quickly when I got onto the job market, I got into um, Nestle. Uh, at the research center in the north of France was uh, focused actually on culinary food. So it was all developing stuff for Maggie, um, 
Knorr, a whole range of brands we were dealing with at the time. Um, and interestingly for them, their main challenge was is obviously Nestle is a mainstream brand, um, but they were trying to bring culinary always more into um, into the foods that they could manufacture at large scale and bring to the public. And France was one of the biggest markets and therefore they really had to up their game or try to figure out how do you bring industrial foods to the level of what people would expect to have at home because back then in the uh you know in the 90s we were still cooking a lot and restaurants were restaurants so you were going there for occasions not for takeaway right so that was kind of the context uh at the time and i was lucky enough that you know i was a young engineer i think 21 or something and i was working with chefs so all of the research center were actual um, you know, chefs who came out of restaurant world and had enough of restaurant and wanted a, an easier second part of their career. So they worked for Nestle in the kitchen and created products. And we were even created products for cosmonauts, you know, the dry foods that they mm-hmm. were to cut, taking off, all that kind of stuff. So it was really from day one, uh, I was really fortunate to work with great people, but people who were really at, at food and creation at their, at their core. So, uh, you know, to your question, as as uh, youth, youth takes, um, you know, being in the north of France in a small city was kind of not quite enough. And so took the opportunity that Nestle was obviously an international food giant and started to invest heavily in multiple countries that they always had. And they were looking for people who were willing and able to get into those countries and help get into the business they were acquiring because... One thing I, I, in the early days, I don't think it's the case anymore, but Nestle was a fascinating company for that. They would obviously acquire companies. Nestle had a strong identity of how you did business, how you made product, a very strong quality culture. But they also recognized always that when they were buying businesses, they were buying IP, they were buying knowledge, they were buying people's um, uh, understanding and experience. So one of the things they used to do is to send Nestle people in those businesses, not to take over initially, certainly not, but more to learn about their business and work out what are the best practices, what are the things Nestle can learn from this business and bring out. And so that's probably was one of the most attractive thing um, that um, I was offered at the time. And so uh, I took it on and went on pretty much then about 10 years of uh, expatriation, as they called it, by going to different countries doing exactly that. And the, the red thread for me at the time was ice cream because that was the business I was um, specialized into. So I went from, you know, being a food tech to creating uh, recipes for ice creams to running production for ice cream to running factories to doing all this kind of, you know, career map. But most interestingly, um, obviously changing countries. So worked in in the Philippines, worked in China, worked um, in uh, in Spain. And then worked uh, in Europe with a global job. So in other words, going to countries every other week, you know, to go into various business from Middle East to South Africa to North. So uh, I think one of the things that really early came into play for me was this food and culture and how you can leverage the the two to actually create some really interesting things. So, you know, I, I, I lived five years in the Philippines at a time where 
my my children don't believe me but we didn't have internet we didn't have mobile phones <laughs> we were faxing our parents once a week and that i'm talking 1996 or 97 so not you know the dark ages but still right mm -hmm. and so you know i remember sometimes leaving the factory and calling just before saying i'm leaving the factory because i had no idea how long it would take me to get to home and there was no means of communication so for two hours you just went into a black hole um, and that's kind of what it was then. So, but what I really, really remember back to our conversation there is, you know, all these incredible fruits and veg that the Filipinos had, you know, things like Lanka, jackfruit, or, or buko and, and macapuno, which are different types of coconuts and all those really interesting, um, unique uh fruits and they were making ice cream with it you know just mm -hmm. like in france that makes strawberry sorbet or you know why because that's what they had and and um and so they built this interesting interesting uh cultural overlay over traditional products and and you know far fast forward to now with coco black that's a lot of what we're we're doing in a in a lot of ways taking uh some of the australia uh layer into um traditional chocolates really or artisanal chocolates that's certainly one of the things we do do uh there's another complete different layer with australia we can talk to about new world age and wanting to challenge the conventions which is very australian mm -hmm. um uh which is which is a whole other level um as well that uh we do at coco black which but it, which is really fundamental from uh australian well, celebrating those Australian awesome. flavors and culture, and that is something yeah. that you're doing today with yes. Coco Black. Do you, when you think about your younger self, is there a big moment that kind of stands out to you? Were you on the line with the ice cream and going, "This is fascinating"? It actually applies to all products or all different, you know, many different industries. What was your your thought process there? Yeah, so. I think the advantage of having the chance to be posted in so many different roles and countries forced me to one, learn to adapt because you were always, you know, the odd one because, and that's something you really need to accept and get over, right? Because, you know, every time you start from a different point. So, um, it doesn't matter whether you've been successful before or you've, got a culture you are really proud of at the end of the day if you're in a different context you've got to adapt and you've got to be the one that says okay yeah I, I can keep my heritage i can keep what i believe in but ultimately i've got to adapt um and it's it's a lesson in business for me all the time right you can fight it or you can actually uh, leverage it and i think it's it's always better to uh, to go and leverage it right so mm. so so that's probably it but in terms of the key probably moment where it landed, it's actually when I left Nestle, um, because for 14 years I worked for Nestle, went all through all this incredible experience, had this, you know, straight up career and, you know, was almost babysitted into one job after another, after another. And all of a sudden I had to make a choice between staying in Nestle, which is like my second family or Australia, because uh, I was here and we loved it here with my family. And I chose to stay in Australia which on the moment felt really good. And then the following week when you don't have a job and you're trying to figure out what to do is a very different feeling because then you realize all I know is the world of Nestle. Mm. All the people I have as network is the world of Nestle. And so for a period there, you know, you go through a quite a low time of thinking, I don't know what I can do. 
even though you've done all these incredible things, you got all these results, but you find yourself out of your element, bang, in a situation. And it's forced me to um, uh, apply for roles, do for things that were completely different from what I've done before, because that's what I had to do um, to get a um, to get a you know ingrained back into the into the active life here, and I found job no problem, so that wasn't the issue. But it was that confidence um, that all of a sudden disappeared. Um, and what was the ha ha moment for me is within three or four months of this first new job, which by the way was at Godfrey's of all places, so vacuum cleaners from ice cream, right? Mm -hmm. So quite interesting job. And I realized that 80, 90% of what I had to do in that business I already knew in one way, shape or form. I had seen it before. I had experience. I had tested it. What I had to do is see through, if you want, the obvious first layer of business and just look at, you know, back to where you're saying processes and something because I'm a food scientist and all I've learned through um, you know, looking at machines and processes and business processes, you actually have to look. So like clockwork, you have to look at what the gears are doing inside and you can actually spot where things are actually not quite going if you apply your thinking like that holistically and just look at what is it trying to do? What is it achieving? And what are the, you know, the connection points? How does it actually work? What do I need to do myself? What can I get others to do? Are there people outside even the business that are better at it than we are? Um, and is it something we really have to do ourselves or, or, or by ourselves? And, and you find 80 or 90% of the responses or the answers you need within those few questions. And that's stuck with me because I was, you know, as I said, trying to do a franchise vacuum cleaner business with spare parts and, you know, like a door to door salesman on the shop floor. Mm -hmm. from having been in an ice cream business selling to supermarkets. So it's just like you can't think about more different um, things to do. And yet it was exactly 80, 90% was the same at the heart in terms of what you had to do or change. That was my ha-ha moment. So would you say that innovation, though, drove those choices as well? Spot on. So I think fundamentally I am a curious person, so I'm always interested in uh, ideas, new things, whether they're technology, whether they are uh, concepts, whether they're people, whether they are. So I'm always interested in, in uh, to discover what's what's different, what's new. So there's a curiosity, I think, that's fundamental to innovation, because if you're not curious about what else could be or how else it could be used or, or what's interesting about this, you will glance over too many things or you will not take the risks that you need to take with innovation. So I think fundamentally, yes, that's and that's been my uh, thread for my career. And very quickly, I think after that, I narrowed down on uh, it, it is what I do best is bring an innovative or a perspective um, to any situation. And that's what I need to bring as my core business value, if you want, going forward. So then I've been more looking for either job situation or businesses that needed more of that rather than uh, pure just operational excellence um, because I think I probably wouldn't be as good at, as that. It's not I can't do it. I've done it multiple times. But ultimately, I think if, 
if you're going to bring something to the job or the business, it needs to be your the best version of yourself. And as far as I am, it's it's um, that innovation perspective uh, difference that I can bring to this situation on where do you go from here kind of kind of thing. Um, and it's fascinating sometimes to see. I mean, the problem is you have an idea a minute, right? If you let it, if you just let it fly, there's always so many. Things. At least. <laughs> so, yeah. So you then have to try and find mechanisms to just say, how do I discipline that into what should I do rather than just what should I be interested into? Because it never stops, right? So I, I love that saying, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Exactly right. That's spot on. Mm-hmm. I think that's another lesson I learned the hard way sometimes in businesses. Um, I remember being in charge of the research development and quality for um, Cadbury on Asia Pacific. So big, big scope, right? And that was probably one of the biggest issue. There was a lot of requests from the business just for newness. So they would, it just could be anything as long as it's slightly different from the previous version, which is probably the wrongest way to do it. But nonetheless, there was a lot of that. Then there was all my own ideas. Then there was all the possibilities and all the stuff we needed to do. And I think the biggest issue I had then is I was running people down by just having too much to do. So I had to learn fairly quickly on how to best prioritize and let go. Um, which is exactly what you just said. Is is this is an important quality as well um, in innovation. So it's interesting. It's a balance of keeping ideas alive, bubbling along until you think they are ready to be decided upon, and not deciding upon the, them too early because sometimes you haven't matured or thought through what this actually could be. But it is this, you know, this uh, lose tight, lose tight approach to innovation, that's actually very, very true. You need to let it lose initially, tighten it, then let it lose about how you're going to execute, then tighten it to actually do it. And that's that's leadership, isn't it? It is. It is. It is. Let's talk about academia. How how did you slot academia into your career? Into all this, yes. Um, I was fortunate that at Mondelez, which was ex-Cadbury Craft um, renamed, uh, we had a leader at the time who was um, absolutely of the belief that whilst we had significant short-term shareholder-driven objectives as a big business has, our future and sustainable success relied on breakthrough or at least a pipeline of significant innovation, not just what we could do within six to 12 months. You know, there was always that theory of faster and better, but that wasn't quite sinking. So we created the Food Innovation Center uh, together with the Victorian government at the moment. It's one of those moments where, you know, opportunity meets um meets the uh meets the eye and all of a sudden this meetings of the mind between government and private and they created this moment saying hey why don't we try and create something that's slightly bigger than one company and go and create this pool um where people can uh use uh the innovation center to support their innovation endeavors because in- innovation is an expensive and tough business if you know, uh, if you're trying to do it repeatedly and a lot of small companies just don't have the tools, um, the big companies have the tool, but not the ID. So we thought, you know, maybe a bubble of um, creativity and innovation tools might actually help that. So we created that 
sure enough, after three years, as big companies do, they got disinterested and wanted to shut it down and move move it along. And so I didn't want to see it die because I felt it did meet, make a lot of great people meet and and certainly had an impact. Uh, and so uh, we found or I negotiated with Monash University a takeover of that. And we exited the Mondelez um, Food Innovation Center to move it to um, Monash. Um, and even though it's had a couple of different iteration is now i think it's found its space with a, a stronger bent towards education which was always i think where they needed to be in the end it's actually still alive at monash university and still doing quite well this is where no, our go. paths crossed that's right that's where we met so um and uh, but really the, the the condition from monash was well we we are happy to take it over but you've got to come with it <laughs> <laughs> so so it was another one of those moments where I was thinking, uh, okay, um, is that is that what I want to do? And look, I thought at the time, I always had the uh, ambition or the interest to see whether I could be an educator or more of a teacher one day. I've always had that interest. Um, but I also thought if I was going to make a more important difference to certain parts of um, you know, our own society and food, in my opinion, is a, is an absolutely critical one. We undervalue, underestimate all the time. It was probably going to have to be something like that, where a lot of the future knowledge um, is sitting in academia, but is not getting transferred into reality quick or well enough. And so I thought if potentially there's a way to have a crack, that's from within. And so that's why I went along with the with the experiment and I said, okay, well, I'll join that. It's a carrier risk because obviously then, you know, you're not an FMCG executive anymore. You're uh, an academic, which is fascinating for me because I don't even have a PhD, but nonetheless. Um, and it was it was a great time for two to three years I spent there was meeting more people who were in that space of saying, how can we um rejuvenate shake shake things up figure out where the path is going so i made some incredible academics who are working on you know what happens when there's no water what happens where um uh you know we need to make uh, a complete new um food chain because it's gone and you know or how do you prevent spread of diseases and so incredible 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 but um and we worked then with companies at the same time to try and say how do we bridge what they have as knowledge and what as you have a commercial interest and how do we bridge you guys because you're not talking the same language you don't have the same interest and you don't even have the same uh, purpose in the end so it's really hard for you to to talk to each other so we we had this food innovation center as one a sticky pot so that industry would come and find some interesting value expert like yourself would find and you know, come and find some interesting things to do at least to engage and then in the background figuring out okay now i understand your business and what you're trying to achieve here is an idea that's not achieved yet but has research evidence sitting over there do you want to co-invest in that um, so that worked reasonably well. Um, you do have to then rely a lot and on finding people because ultimately, you know, companies are things. They have one purpose in life. It's to make money. 
academics uh, or academia is another thing and it has as purpose is publication right so uh, you can't deviate them from that and believe me i tried and you know they just don't ultimately that's their organism that's how they live but you can find people who are willing to take some bets you can find people who want to give away a little bit of time energy some money to actually go and do something slightly different and if you work hard enough you find uh, a number of them to start doing a few things and that's that's kind of what we started at the um, food innovation center it was bloody hard work though i have to tell you because it's not natural it clearly is oil and water and people just do tend to separate and i think the only thing i realized as well is that also had some vision of grandeur of being able to solve some humanity's problems maybe on some of these things i realized quickly that um it was just never going to happen because you know we could only affect some very very small things and if if we really wanted to do this you probably needed to be the head of the bill gates foundation or something you know in other words hold the money pot and actually decide where it needs to go and needs to go on big things and by the way bill gates invests a lot in those in in universities and i think he does a brilliant job at that so so it academia was fascinating to understand i think there's huge amount of knowledge and and great people in there but i don't think that's the way to um go for that it has to come from this uh either government or if they were ever able to actually do that for more than you know five minutes and not change which doesn't happen or more importantly i think those foundation are probably the way to go to work on some more fundamentals. Well, the activation that we worked on together, that there were lots of knock-on positives as a result. Absolutely. And that was exciting from from our point of view because to be looking at it through academic eyes but still doing it our way with pushing the boundaries and looking at, you know, ingredients and how they complement different industries. And that was your yeah, I still vision. Talk about it, Tanya, yeah. Tanya, I still talk about it to people. Uh, this this great thing we did with Meat Life Australia, and it's funny. I was listening to um, your last podcast with uh, uh, Christopher Tech, mm-hmm. um, and he was talking about this explosion of flavors. That you know, you're lucky if you do it once every now and again. With when you're a chef, and he says, when I work with native ingredients, it's like every week or every time. And he's right. I remember that that session very very well to this day because i remember tasting stuff that daniel was having us taste mm-hmm. uh raw and then you were cooking with uh with the chef there in the back with meat and it was incredible these are tastes that i've never had before either and um you know they stick to my mind to this date and so it's just a it, to me this was what the essence of this initiative was is the meeting of people but the meeting of people and ideas and things that you would not traditionally come um uh, against and that's what's the spark sometimes that creates that innovative um spirit or these great ideas is because you come across something that you didn't expect and um you come with your own heritage and perspective therefore you can take that in and make something different with it that the people who are used to it might. And that, that I think, is fundamental to uh, keeping innovation alive in, in an industry or in a country. It's those meetings and those um, events are critical, I think. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, everyone takes away their own interpretation 
And that's what's exciting about it. And that's the beautiful thing of food. And as you mentioned, you know, when we first started talking about food and culture, and that particular workshop we did at Monash with you was very much bringing in the Australian native ingredients and then also alternative, you know, proteins and looking at insects. And and that um, in itself, doing it, you know, in an interactive way is crucial because it is so tactile and you need to really immerse yourself in it to really understand it. Yeah. We've got to go back to being kids and it, yeah. it's education, right? So if 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 you're educated this way, which is actually again an interesting thing for me because Australia does that ten times better than France. France is extremely academic. So from a young age, you are learning through the teacher and repetition. You don't learn through this kind of experiential way. Australia is probably the opposite. Um, and it's only later that you learn some of the academic part, which so you know, my children have been super fortunate because they were doing 50-50. So where they're getting the best of both. Uh, and it's made them extremely rich and adaptable from that, from that. So it's it's interesting because for me, this experiential way, mm. especially when you become an adult and everything you learn is far more academic or, or straight. You know, you do PowerPoints, you do uh, e-learning, you do all this kind of stuff that's really rigid. But I think you get so much out of these kind of experiential learnings that um, it, a blend of both would be would be the ideal. But um, yes, so in this particular instance, it was significant. I would really like to talk about Australian natives and chocolate and, and where Cocoa Black is today and your role within that space. And where you see the future going for not only the business, but for yourself personally. So um, I joined Coco Black four years ago. Um, I met with the owner of the business as he is now, uh, Simon Crow, who owns also Grilled uh, Burgers. Um, and he had a vision for Coco Black that was, again, you know, back to where we're talking about seeing beyond what was at that point Um visible to everybody so you were seeing beyond what was really unique about coco black and, and if i summarize it it's it's really this contemporary australia approach so we were talking about australian food and i think this is something we then from there on we've been uh, really hell-bent on exploring and expressing and innovating around this australia has this knack of taking traditional foods stripping it apart and looking at what is really true about the experience or the interest of um, you know people into that particular category of foods, and then just putting it back together in their own way, which is extremely contemporary. And interestingly, you know, you can as a French, I can look at Australian wines and see exactly that. That's what Australia has done to wine. And there is now such a thing as Australian wine. You don't have to define it. You understand what it is. And it's completely different from, um, you know, the way French do wine. Uh, matter of fact, you'd, you'd actually uh, get excommunicated if you were doing, um, if you're doing wine in France the way Australians do it. So it, it is fascinating to see. And then you can see that then Australia went on to do this with coffee, you know, Melbourne coffee and has created a different kind of coffee that now, again, the world is getting into. Um, I think cheese someday might be there. I mean, I'm French, so I've got, you know, really high standards on that. But 
it is getting there. Mm. Um, and certainly we're trying to do it to artisanal chocolate. So if I look at, you know, uh, the way Belgian do it, the way French do it, it's reasonably traditional in the way it's approached. Coco Black does exactly the same thing. It took these products and completely re-engineered the recipes, the origin of ingredients, the way it's made and explored textures and taste and blends and origins. Um, and then really at the end, this is where you can, as a natural fit, you can bring Australian native ingredients who bring these incredible unique flavors never seen before because they come from the land, but they just, you need to um, respect them in the way you blend them together and bring them into um, uh, a traditional category such as uh, artisanal chocolate. And because Coco has been doing that forever, um, it, it felt a natural fit to do it. So I think we're just going, continuing down that path of bringing the contemporary Australian look um, into, into chocolate. A big piece from a business perspective that we've realized along the way is that we are actually also uh, a gift mostly. And so a lot of people recognize others into the, our products or into how they bring our products together. And it's part of the experience of giving Coco Black to someone else is to say, you know, or oh, here are some really interesting things that I think make me think about you or, or I want you to discover. And that's part of the um, the real proposition that Coco Black has. So uh, I think we finally found our groove after two or three really difficult years through COVID, which forced us to really crystallize some of these things and decide, you know, back to prioritization, as we were saying earlier, mm-hmm. um, helped us really crystallize what do we go after, what will we don't go after. Um, and we've really believed in this idea and expressed it ourselves. And since then, we've been growing quite quite strongly. With regards to collaborations, I, I think back to your one of your first ones with Dan Hunter, bringing in those Australian native ingredients and introducing flavors such as, um, you know, whipstick wattle and roasted coconut, lemon myrtle, you know, with that 72%. I mean, all of those flavors working doesn't happen by chance. There's a lot of R&D. So how do you know what you're going to invest in? Because do you feel that it's a gamble or are you making a pretty educated guess based on? We we do research? a bit of both. Um, we have a philosophy of test and learn with Coco Black. So mm-hmm. we take edu- we take educated guess and, and risks, but we normally try and take contained risks. So in other words, we are quite happy to run out of product. So we're quite happy to say, we're not 100% sure. We think it's a good idea. People who have interacted with us have a good feeling about this. So let's go and make a make a play with it. And if we run out, then we'll plan again, right? So um, that's obviously a luxury of being in the premium business is that, you know, it is acceptable to run out, right? Mm. So it's part of the... Uh, the charm of the of of a premium food offering where you know people in the know will want to get it first and that's that's actually a good thing from a business perspective but fundamentally at the core of it is in everything we do at coco we certainly focus and optimize the uh, core of the business but we are constantly test and learn matter of fact for some people they'll tell you it's exhausting in, <laughs> in my business because it's never settled, but this is what makes us us. So you can't ever back away from that. And um, thank you for reminding me about the word collaboration because 
very early in the piece we did say and especially during covid it, it became an obvious thing is that the best way for people to discover your business and your brand is sometimes through um like-minded others you know you, it's a community in a way mm. uh, you know it's a bit of a broad word but you know we do like to work with people who think the same about food as we are or or premium as we are or uh, experiments as we are and we like to co-create or to share be together um and so we have done it with dan we've done it with ben shuri at attica recently we've been doing it with four pillars on a regular basis black pa black star pastry you know just back to your um, podcast last week is another partner we've done these things together because we think alike Mm -hmm. And we have this view of contemporary Australia that we want to bring to the world. And there's no better way to either associate like we do with Four Pillar or to co-create like we do with Blackstar. We know there are issues around the supply chain with Australian natives in particular. Given that, how do you go about sourcing? Yes. Yeah, so for Australian native ingredients, it's always a difficult space because you want to make sure that the people at the end or at the start of the chain uh, are respected and obviously it's done the right way it's done the way that they uh, intend right so um, and it is extremely seasonal um, as a way because they obviously go with the um, seasons uh, themselves there's no you know industrialization of this it's 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 harvested when it's harvested and that's how you work so we've we've associated with uh, essentially people who source for us uh, at regular intervals that we know because we've been with them um, in Northern Territory or in South Australia and seen how it was done, um, like um, uh, Daniel's business, uh, something wild. And so we try and work with people like that. Um, there's a couple a couple of other companies just to make sure that. Um, we can uh, use them or understand that they are representing the communities from which they source uh, in the best possible way, but also they can inform us or educate us as we go about, you know, that this is only between, you know, June and July, and this is how it's done. So we can integrate that in how we think about the product or when we have the product, uh, and we don't try and, you know, impose on that chain what um, we would need to go and, you know, do a traditional 12 months around type product. So there's really an element of understanding you've got to go hard at. And then there's an element, as always, of people and relationship to make sure that um, it is something that you do the right way. So th that's that's the approach we take with that. And, you know, it has obviously consequences in the sense that, you know, we can't always have the products available you know, prices go up or down and it varies and so on. But to us, it is an important part of our range. It's not the only part of our range. And therefore, we can afford to make sure we do this and respect that the best way possible. Well, I'm I'm noticing more and more that Cocoa Black is um, popping up at independent supermarkets. And, you know, it's it's more accessible to the consumer than ever before. Is Was that a strategic plan of yours? Yes. So we 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 thought just before COVID, we thought we were going to be what we call an omni-channel brand. So something that the brand is more important than, than the product. So in other words, that people are actually becoming 
uh, advocate or part of a Coco Black family and really are looking for that uh, offer where they can, uh, wherever they can. So it transcends, if you want, our own stores. But fundamentally, our own stores is where Coco Black exists and is experienced and really is um, existing. And then hopefully from that experience, you are looking for more opportunities to um, either gift it or buy it where you can. Now, obviously, we can't have Coco Black stores everywhere. We'd like to, but we can't. Um, we do have an online business. That's one thing. But um, as you would know, there's um, an element of digital uh, connection that's quite important, um, uh, a physical rather, I mean, than, than digital. And so people are going back to this post COVID quite a bit. And so we've always had this again, slow, but sure approach to distribution. And, um, we do try and partner with, um, uh, retailers slowly, but surely that we think are going to do a good job for the brand as well. Um, and so slowly but surely we're expanding those di distribution points as people are getting more interested into the brand. So we give more access. So, but it's a combination strategy of our own stores where we can't have stores, but we can find partners, uh, like Iris Farms, a great partner of ours. Um, and then obviously online when that, uh, that, uh, uh that needs occur. In terms of your career path going forward, you're acting CEO today. So why are you acting CEO and not CEO? Uh, well, I've had health problems last year after three years full on. Um, and so we are currently in the process of uh, finding, a, a, you know, a, a CEO ongoing for the business. And um, because I love the people here and the business so much, I've raise my hand to hold it and uh, keep making it work whilst, uh, whilst they look for that person. But I know, uh, even though I would love to, I know I, I can't sustain this level of uh, stress and performance into this uh, because of my health. So I have to um, actually, uh, again, you know, back to choices and priorities, mm -hmm. I've got to actually uh, restrain myself and say, I can only do this for a bit. Um, that being said, I've I was in the business anyway, um, and I will participate into the business anyway, in particular on their um, innovation and mm -hmm. developmental strategy, as as you would expect, and some of the key work we're doing in in this part. And we've got some exciting stuff to bring to market. But uh, yeah, so that's why, because when you're a, a CEO of a growth and small business, it's all, you know, it just takes everything of you and as it, as it should be, I think. And if you've got to be prepared to put everything you've got and more. Mm. Um, and unfortunately for me, I can't do that anymore. <laughs> so uh, I've got to restrict myself and make sure that I actually go to um, uh, what I can do best and control the time I put and the energy I put in it. We talk about our careers and, and different times and, and places for different things. With advice for other business owners and CEOs, what would be the three top tips that come to mind um, that you can um, give? Uh, get a circle of trust. Get people you want to talk to, even if it's about, you know, non-important stuff, but continue to make sure you keep connections you keep people you can talk to you can bounce off you can learn or hear from no matter what 
that's a really important thing because the world can be closing in when you're um, a CEO. It's a very lonely job or can be a very lonely job. And you go through the, uh, the high and lows of, you know, any job, I think. So you do need to have that external uh, perspective or, or pulse check or pick me up or, you know, I want to share type thing. I think that's really important. And uh, for example, that's something we do, right? Something out of the blue, we just talk. And I think that's important to keep uh, honoring that and being part of that. Can I just jump in there? I love our chats, you know, um, sometimes they're more frequently than others, but every time they're, they're a, meaning, a meaningful interchange. So thank you. And, and I think that's what's important. So I would say any CEO, any business leader, you need that. It's really important because uh, these jobs take a lot of out. You need to refill the tank. And the only way I feel you can refill the tank is by meaningful interaction with others. And within within a business, it's harder, right? Because there's always an agenda, no matter what you do. Um, it's better if you have a circle or people you can um, resource from. And that's, so that'd be one. The second thing is, I think, test and learn, test and learn, test and learn, because you know, too many businesses are, uh, you know, hamstrung by their own fears and all their own processes, you know, because businesses are designed to eliminate, eliminate risk and, and increase asset value. So anything that resembles like, you know, too far away on innovation will be absolutely invested out. And I get that. So you, there is a way in between, which is test and learn. Just take some smaller chances and risk and learn from them and be agile on that front. You don't have to do it all the time, but you have to keep doing it. Otherwise, you will not um, be able to see opportunities. And then thirdly, I think what we discussed before, as much as I like doing a lot of different things, ultimately, it's about prioritization. And um, prioritization for me is about outcomes. You know, what's the best outcome from here? But also it's about um, value add. So you really need to understand the whole chain of the business, not just the numbers. Um, and try to see uh, in any ID what might it actually yield. Where Because sometimes a small a number, a small ID actually has multiple leverage and actually gives you uh, a lot more value than you realize. So if you think value rather than numbers, sometimes it's actually better. So that'd be my free advice. Well, <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for joining Food Views and Big Ideas. And um, look forward to catching up with you uh, soon, either in yes. Sydney or Melbourne. All the very best. And uh, thank you again. Thanks yeah. a lot, Tanya. Well, thank you so much for tuning in with us today. We really hope you enjoyed listening as much as we've enjoyed the conversation. You'll find links to anything mentioned in today's chat in the show notes. We have some more extraordinary guests lined up and we would love you to join us again. So please make sure you're following us on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss future episodes. We'd also love to hear any of your feedback, good or bad, or perhaps you've got a guest you'd love to hear from. You can let us know. And the best way to stay up to date with what we're doing, who we're talking to, and where you'll find us around the country is to become part of the Straight to the Source community at straighttothesource.com.au forward slash community. Until next time.